Welcome back to this week's episode of Unstick at Home with myself, Luis Gallardo, uh, Brendan Gleason, and Aiden Silva. This week, we'll be discussing Prisoners of War with a special guest, analyzing Kurt Vonnegut's dark humor, and discussing the viewpoints of the Trelf Famidorians. Stay tuned as we dive into this conversation of chapters four through seven next. All right, welcome back to Unstuck at Home, the podcast about everything in Slaughterhouse Five and the parallels that it connects to real society. Uh, for this segment, we actually have a guest appearance from uh, Mr. Johnson, a St. Rita High School English teacher, and he's going to be giving us his thoughts and opinions about um, being a prisoner of war. Uh, he has taught. Uh, the book, The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien, and we have him on the podcast here today to give us a little bit about what he thinks. Thank you for coming on the show. No, thanks for having me. Um, all right, so uh, have you are you have you read um, Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut? Um, yeah, but not in many, many, many years. Um, okay. probably about 20 years ago. Well, I, I read earlier that, um, actually Tim O'Brien and Kurt Vonnegut, uh, they draw the same source of inspiration. That's, uh, both being, um, veterans. Uh, Tim O'Brien writes about his experience, uh, in the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And they both... Kurt Vonnegut and Tim O'Brien both put themselves into their novels. And it's kind of interesting because um, it's their way of dealing with what they saw during that time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being a prisoner of war not necessarily means uh, being on enemy lines locked up, but it also could be uh, being a prisoner to the thoughts that you can't escape. Um, that you're you're trapped in you're trapped in the war still years after even if uh you you're out of the military for a long time mm-hmm. yeah so uh, any thoughts on that yeah well i mean that's true i mean we look at we look at that heavily um oh and trying to think of the, name of the chapter when we look at things they carry we look at bowkers I think it's Bowker's chapter, um, uh, the one with Kiowa when he's driving around the lake. But then we look at um, the chapter after that, where it actually talks about the person that actually happened to. And it talks about what actually happened to that individual, like when he was writing the chapter, because um, PTSD, the PTSD, especially from World War One and World War Two. They didn't know what PTSD was in World War One. You hit shell shock. So basically, mm-hmm. um, they didn't treat it like a mental illness. It just basically you went to sanitarium for the most part. Um, it or and people in World War Two didn't talk about it. It was a big thing. Um, I can tell you that guys in World War Two did not talk about World War Two. So there was no like getting past it. It wasn't until they started um, all of these like reunions. Yeah, that guys got together with guys and basically um, started to talk about the war experience again. 
So my grandfather being one of them, my grandfather was in the 101st Airborne. He was one of the first guys that landed on D-Day. And he never talked about it at all. He was with the Red Hawks division. And um, the most he ever talked about, and I tell, I know the seniors and my juniors know this, is that he talked about being in a farmhouse without a weapon in France and that the, the Germans were outside the farmhouse. And that's as far as the story went. And it wasn't until years later I realized he was actually talking about um, – him parachuting from the plane because when they when they went to parachute, I think it was that morning or the morning before, they gave them new equipment for their M1 rifles, where their M1 rifles were actually tied to their legs. And what happened is when you parachuted, the um, the cord that connected the rifle to you um, ripped, and so when you landed, you didn't have anything except for a K bar knife. So you basically had to take guns from the dead or kill somebody and take their weapon. And until that time, you basically had to lay low because you didn't have a weapon on you. But until he had these reunions, he did not talk about the war. And so when we look at things they carry too, it's, it's was still very true for Vietnam. Guys did not talk about the war. My father was in the war, never spoke about the war. My uncles were in the war, they never spoke about the war. And the same thing happens with Bowker. Bowker is PTSD. He has no way to talk about it. And what eventually happens is he succumbs to the disease that he has and he ends up killing himself. So one of the things that we study, too, is we look at PTSD um, and the symptoms of that they're looking at now. And part of the problem is it's the age you go in um, is one of the things your war experience. Um, and what they found out, too, is the older you get, if you don't get a handle on it, um, it gets worse with age. And actually, it, it gets way worse with age, where it, it consumes you the older you get, because your brain, I guess your brain changes and you and you just can't deal with the situation. So as Vonnegut talks about it, um, and I know I can vouch for uh, Tim O'Brien, the effects of war are long lasting and um, extreme. A character from um, Slaughterhouse-Five, uh, Billy Pilgrim. Uh, he experiences, like, PTSD, but, like, it starts to get, you can tell, like, it's, like, worse and worse after he, like, came home from the war. So I feel like that's what you're talking about, how it gets worse over time. It, it, well, it gets worse over time, too, and what they've noticed is because you don't talk about it, so you can't get past it. <clears throat> that was part of the thing was guys of the World War II generation, um, you didn't talk about your emotions. No, if you, if you got therapy, you were a damaged individual. You didn't go and get therapy now. And we've talked about this, especially we talk about this in hip hop because we're looking at mental illness now. Um, the guys have brought up the idea of therapy today and therapy back then. And the thing was, you didn't talk about your experiences. You know what I mean? You didn't talk about things bothering you. You just put them behind you. And what happens is the longer that you can't, put, the longer that you try to deal with it that way, you don't try and talk it out or get it out. Like the worse, the more it consumes you and, and eats you alive. So when you this, based on research too today, that's that's a very true testament to what happens when you don't you don't deal with your trauma. So a question for you: uh, When somebody brings up the subject like this of uh, prisoners of war, what like are your initial thoughts about it? Like, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of prisoners of war? You know, when I think of prisoners of war, I, I go automatically to a lot of like. Um, like what I've seen in movies, 
um, because the prisoner of war thing, like veterans, meeting veterans and talking about to veterans about like their war experience, it's one thing. But prisoners of war is pretty much like outside my wheelhouse. And and the thing is, is we don't talk about prisoners of war that often. Doesn't that get brought up? Um, I don't. I wouldn't say it's like it's like a common thing. You know, it's a thing that you heard about World War Two. You know, you saw movies about or you see movies about, but like to actually have a perspective on it, I don't even know if I have a perspective on it, put it that way, because it's been so sensationalized and so little of it's actually been I've ever read, discussed or had to study that my perspective is pretty much skewed on it. Okay. I feel like, yeah, I feel like a lot of what the media puts out to us, um, like if you remember the movie um, Unbroken. Mm hmm about the World War II prisoner of war. Uh, they show a lot of movies like that, um, like people who can overcome such like horrible experiences and, uh, you know, just being trapped um, on enemy lines. And But they don't really show like the effects that it has on those people and really, like the stuff they go through mentally and what the real, like the reality is in most cases of, of them uh, dying or coming back home and not being the same way. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like, like I said, it's it's all sensationalism. It's all like extremism. It's all like, oh, like every movie you ever see with an American, like a prisoner of war, they're always trying to escape. Everybody's trying to escape. Everybody's digging a tunnel, or they're, you know what I mean, um, getting mm-hmm. enemy uniforms and and they're trying to get out of there. The the most like the most real stuff I got. Um, wasn't about prisoners of war. It was actually about um, uh, Holocaust survivors from the camps. Because I think if you're going to like, like, it's the closest comparison you can get. And one of the things they said is they talked about hope. I remember one one thing I read and they said, the most important thing was you can't give up hope that you will one day be free. But the key to it was you couldn't put a timeline on it. So it was like you couldn't say like, OK, in a month I'll be free because what they said was like when the month came and went like your hope came and went because you gave it a deadline and it didn't happen. And so they said that for people that had a deadline for like when they thought they'd be liberated or or when they would find their freedom again, um, they couldn't. They just had to know that someday it would happen. Um, and I think the same had to be true for prisoners of war. You know what I mean? Um like for the Americans or, or, or for whatever group that they had to have hope that someday they would get out of that situation, but they couldn't put an end date on it. Cause what happens is it's a thing. The thing we never see is the day in day out, just the, the humdrum, you know what I mean? Like you get up, you work, you eat, you go to bed and then you, you know, you repeat, you know, for like whatever, how many days in a row. And what, what does that do to you? You know, one of the things I saw too, which it doesn't even have to do with personal war um, it was the infograph show on, on YouTube, if you guys have ever seen it. And it and the one was, would you survive in Alcatraz? And they said, like, the, the thing in Alcatraz wasn't so much like you would um, you would get stabbed and killed. The thing in Alcatraz was that it was so repetitive and so stringent on what you had to do that eventually it would break you and make you go nuts. And so then you would act out and then something would happen. But the cause of like of whatever would kill you wouldn't be like somebody else necessarily. It was you breaking under the strain of having to repeat the same routine every single day. 
And that's the thing that I wonder for these prisoners of war, how did that affect them? Yeah, I feel like a lot of people just think of like how prisoners are like physically affected, but that does take like a huge mental strain on people to be like doing daily routines and just getting up working, not eating, barely having anything to drink and just repeating that every day. That's what I mean, just to keep you alive or like no human contact. It was a big thing with Alcatraz was like, you could not talk. You could not talk to yourself. Mm-hmm. Like if you talk to yourself, the guards would come in and then you get thrown in the hole. And then you would spend like seven days in a dark hole by yourself. And you could talk to yourself as much as you want, but that was, I mean, and that's the thing is like, what's the mental toil? Because the physical is one thing, you know, and if they beat you bad enough or they do something bad enough, then then death is there. But like the mental thing, that's long lasting. And that's where we, you know, I go with the PTSD because, you know, how do you come back as a prisoner of war and you've had no counseling? You know, you've had no therapy, you know, but you've spent three years in this in this extreme um, environment. It's restricted you in every single way, taken away every single decision you have, you know, and then you then you're, you're reintroduced to the free world. And it's like, OK, go live your life. Well, how do you do that? I, we talked about this uh, on our last podcast. We talked about how, like, after war, like veterans who are like who have PTSD and mental disorders, like don't receive enough attention and like medical help from the government mm-hmm. for their service. Yeah, that's true. That's definitely that's definitely true, and that's one of the things we're looking at right now, because um, the mental health community, number one, social services for veterans is is not um, it's not as much as large as it should be, um, and federal spending has been cut repeatedly on that area, but also that falls into insurance and mental health. Um, number one, there's not enough mental health. Um, providers let me put it that way there's a huge gap and like i said we talked in hip-hop and we're like you know has anybody you know we talk college we talk this we talk areas to go into and we're like um is any of the counselors has anybody reached out and said hey if you are interested in psychology you know you should go into this area or this field and they're all like no and they're like why else they're like we know about the insurance stuff but what else is going on i said well number one there's no providers Said so number two, um, mental health is is an area where they can actually tell you they're not taking new patients. So, I, like I said, say that you needed to see a doctor, and um, can a doctor reject you? Can you say like I I don't feel well, I, you know? And they're like, no. I said, yeah, but mental health, they can't. They can tell you like mm-hmm. um, flat out like I'm not taking new patients. And then the third thing is they don't have to take insurance at all. So they can be like, well, if you want to see me, it's $250 an hour. So how do you afford twice a week therapy for four weeks, which would be $2,000 in cash? And guys are like, holy crap. And I'm like, that's what happens. Because the thing, too, is a lot of veterans that finally decide to go get therapy, they don't decide to get therapy right away. They decide to get therapy after they've, you know what I mean, done their service and they're working on another job and they become a cop or they become a fireman or they something. And then they're like, you know what? Um, I'm not well. I need, I need to go talk to somebody. And then they can't find anybody to talk to. Um, child psychologists, right now, one of the things I found out is there's so few that the waiting list for your kid to see one is between six and nine months. So, yeah. So if your kid's like, I'm, I don't feel well, I need help, 
and you need to go get them help, you're going to be in a tough spot because it's at least six to nine months on a waiting list to see if, like even anybody through university. So the field itself is, is, doesn't have a lot of providers, but there's a lot of other gaps that are there. Um, and like I said, this is the, like the new area we're looking at. So, so I can talk about, you know, talk about that pretty well. Do we have anything to add? Um, well, actually, um, I do. Uh, so um, throughout the book so far, or from what we've read, um, the character Billy um, is going through so much um, mental exhaustion. Excuse me, exhaustion. Mm-hmm. It's clear that um, it's not just affecting him, but it's also affecting the people around him. Um, my question was, um, how do you think um, PTSD and other mental illnesses affect not only the you know veteran or person or prisoner of war, but how does it affect um, the people around him, the families? you know, even the friends. Oh, definitely. Um, you know, one of the, the biggest thing, it, it definitely affects people around you because of negative, um, what do we call it? Negative mechanisms to cope, negative coping mechanisms actually is what it's called. And one of them is, and one of the things that mental illness is, is goes kind of hand in hand with, with a lot is substance abuse. So drinking, drugging, um, to deal with, the issues that they find. So if you have a father figure who gets married, has a kid and then is using alcohol to deal with their pain and they're not getting up in the morning, they're losing their job, you know, they're unemployed. So now you have financial issues, but there's also like reckless behavior. Um, there's also isolationism, which just is people not wanting to talk to anybody or see anybody. Um, so all of these things, like if you're a husband, and that's kind of where we're taking it from in that class, uh, all of those would affect the family around you um, in some negative fashion. Hopefully, you know, more than likely it would end in divorce uh, for if the person was a father um, and, the, and the mother could like leave. Um, otherwise, it would just probably be a continual cycle. Um, and it could even extend into abuse to some degree, but a lot of it would be contained with the person. So there's self-harm, um, which means they're doing something, you know, something to harm themselves, which from what we figured out is untreated for long enough, it might uh, end up in suicide. So, but all those things would affect people around you. Right. I think that's very clear with um, this character in, in Slaughterhouse-Five. Um, he's really going through a lot and it's clear that um, it's not only affecting his view, I mean, he's mentally deteriorate, deteriorating at this point, but it's also affecting, you know, his friends and his family all around him. It's affecting mm-hmm. his world. Oh, yeah. And that's the, that's the thing about PTSD. You can't, like, you can't get away, like, if you don't have, if you don't deal with it, it, it will just manifest and fester. And I've, I saw a lot of that with guys I taught um, in the first wave for the Afghan war. And they're, these guys now are about 34 and they're fathers now. And when I see some of them and, you know, I'm like, how are you doing? And they're just like, you know, not well. One guy was literally in the vanguard of, you know, the incursion in Fallujah. And he's just now like, he's been a cop for eight years and he's just like, I really don't, I really think something's wrong with me. 
And I'm like, what's happening? And he's taught you. We were talking like last month and I'm like, you really probably should see somebody. But then it comes down to the issue again of like, can he, can he find somebody to see? Cause here's like, again, here's the crazy thing. He wants to get well. Can he afford to get well? Literally financially. Can he find somebody who'll take him? You know, will this insurance cover it? Will he have to wait six months to see somebody? Cause that's another thing is like, you could be like, I, I think I'm going to kill myself. And they'll be like, Oh, you should call the suicide hotline. Cause we can't get you in for two weeks. So good luck. Like there's, there's a lot of like different things, you know what I mean? Going on. Um, so with him and remember too, here's another thing. When Vonnegut wrote that too, what year was it when he wrote Billy? Um, this was around when he wrote uh, Slaughterhouse Five. Yeah, yeah. When he wrote the character of Billy, what year was that? Uh, that was. Let me see here. That was around 1969. Yeah, 1969. Yeah, back then, um, mental health, the stigma around mental health, he wouldn't have gotten help. He would not have gotten help. Um, cause the stigma around it, it would have been meant like something's like seriously wrong with you. You know what I mean? Like he would, he would not have thought out mental health, like assistance. He would have probably either, is he drinking in the novel too, to deal with it? Uh, or is he, just a patch no, it doesn't say that he has a drinking problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has drank before and how is he uh, to deal with it? Does he just have nightmares all the time? He starts hallucinating. Um, it's he starts. Yeah, yeah that's. He, it's more of like he has uh, this thing where he like. Go ahead, you go, Silva. So he has like this. He has this thing. <laughs> go ahead, Leonard. all right, all right. So he has this thing where he's like unstuck in time, but it's like at any moment of his life, he just like flashes back to like different memories. Mm-hmm. So he really doesn't like have control of like where he is in his mind well and that's part of that's part of literally of ptsd is that anything can trigger back memories of where you're at and you have no control but the whole trigger part that's akin to what he's talking about like you can be somewhere and something will trigger flashback and you're stuck in the flashback so it's it's like it's a type of hallucination if you will or, or time traveling if you will um, but it, it affects your ability to, to live because the other thing too is, is like there's certain social situations and things that you just can't, you can't deal with. Um, I can tell you like, uh, for a lot of veterans, 4th of July is one of them. Um, and like my nephew can't like go out 4th of July. Like he tells his, his in-laws have a huge party and he can't go cause due to the fireworks flat out so he never attends and he's been uh, i mean he's been stateside now like 12 years and he still can't so it's, it's a very real thing and and he's had therapy but he's still like it's just something there's a trigger with that date that he just can't get you know what i mean can't get beyond so uh, one final question you said that you have had family members that like served you just talked about was that your, your nephew you just talked yeah. about? Uh, but you said you had other family members like your dad. Have you, like any of them experienced uh, symptoms of PTSD? Oh, yeah, my dad's in therapy now. 
my dad spent my dad was a cop for 34 years um my dad isn't there i mean goes to therapy now to deal with like all the stuff he's dealt with as a cop and the, the stuff he's dealt with in vietnam i mean my dad was an mp in the gulf of tonkin <clears throat> and i've told guys this that his whole job for two years was going to arrest guys that were awol that were um that were like marines and 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 uh the army, you know, army guy or army officers that would just go AWOL because they didn't want to go back. Because when you would go out on patrol, you'd go out for 30 days and they would come back and they would get drunk and they just wouldn't come back to base. Um, so he dealt with that. My uncle was a Marine. Um, he did not get therapy. He um, self-medicated. He was an alcoholic. Um, for years, my aunt couldn't understand why. Uh, because he was a, he would only drink and he would bench drink only at certain times of the year. Um, like he'd go on a, like a week or two bender, but it was always the same week and the same month. Like you could set your watch by it. And what it turned out to be right before he died, he figured it, you know, he kind of got some help. Um, but it was more for his, like his alcoholism was that it was tied to his experience in Vietnam and something that happened in Vietnam. Um, my grandfather, um, as I said, went the other way. He came home and he wasn't an angry guy, but he became the most, um, pa uh, patient, compassionate person you'd ever meet. Um, and he didn't go to war that way. So guys are asking me, they're like, what do you think that was about? I said, what could you have seen that would never make you get angry again? Because I was a pretty horrible kid and I... I'm telling you guys, he never, he never yelled at anybody. And even my mom said that. And my grandmother was like, yeah, when he came back from the war, he did not come back. Um, he did not come back the same person. He actually came back a better person. Um, but he, he was part of the old generation and he just kind of dealt with it. He didn't drink. He didn't self-medicate. Um, I don't know how he did it, but he just, he was probably the most healthiest guy out of all of them. My cousins have come back um, from Afghanistan. I've got three nephews that served. They've all had issues um, with alcoholism, um, reckless behavior, gambling, stuff like that, um, that they didn't have before they left. So there's a, there's a lot. I mean, and that's the thing. But not a lot of these guys, too, again, they're younger guys. They weren't seeking out therapy because they were in their 20s when they came back, and they are like, nah, I'm fine. This is just part of being 20, you know, uh, I think part of it, a lot of it was due to, due to what they saw, because um, one of them who came back, who actually is healthy, he actually got his degree in psychology and counseling. And I see Donnie like three times a year. And I'm like, and I asked Donnie, I'm like, well, this is your profession. What do you think? And he goes, yeah, those three guys are screwed up and they need to get out. And he's like, you know, um, but he's he kind of stumbled on it not because he thought he himself he needed help. He was a kid who had a very rough life and he wanted to help kids not have such a rough life. Um, so he became kind of like he's a counselor and, a, and a, like a, a child um, psychologist. He's studying to be, but he deals with kids that have substance abuse problems. So because um, he was a kid who I know you guys don't know, but there's a place in the Midwest called Boys Town. And when you are so bad that your parents don't know what to do with you, they send you to Boys Town. 
And Boys Town is a place that they deal with really, really, really troubled youth. And he's he ended up there. So he wanted to work with these kids that had these problems. But he also, Donnie was a, a vet, um, how many years? I think 16 years. Um, and he was in Afghanistan as an MP um, for four of them. So he, he saw a lot of stuff too. But he's a guy too that inadvertently got the right kind of counseling and the right type of therapy and, and is pretty well adjusted now. But he can see the issues with these other three guys in the family. All right. Well, thank you for coming on the show today. Uh, thank that you. Includes this segment. Thank you for uh, prisoners of war and also being a prisoner inside of your own head. Um, uh, tune in in a little bit. We'll be back with our next segment. Uh, thank you again, Mr. Johnson, for tuning in and thank talking you. to us. Yep. No problem. All right, and we'll be back after this break. Okay. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to segment two of Unstuck at Home, uh, episode two. For this segment, we're going to be talking about uh, Kurt Vonnegut's dark humor and the way he uses dark humor and irony throughout the text. Yeah, he has some uh, pretty dark humor and uh, a lot of dirty jokes. Um, Like, a lot of his jokes have been kind of like some jokes you'd hear, like a high school lunchroom table like something that like a high school boy would say uh talk about like genitalia and stuff um it's just i guess to keep things light but also in an adult tone because it's definitely not a book for kids um yeah so any thoughts on like why he would use the dark humor um I think for either two reasons why he's using dark humor, I feel like it's either because, like, the rest of the book is kind of like, it's kind of like a dark book about war, so he's just using dark humor to fit in with the other humor, or he's using dark humor to, like, lighten the mood almost. Like, it may seem weird that you'd use dark humor to do that, but, like, the book is such a dark, depressing book that you, like, this humor would just, like, grab the attention of audiences better, I feel, when reading this. Yeah, definitely, like, shocks, like, the reader when they're reading and then they read, like, like a whole line about, um, there, there was even a part in the book where they were talking about, um, Billy when he was naked with, um, with a Montana Wild Hack, and then they, he says that, um, Billy has a bigger genitalia, to put it that way, and I just thought that was funny because, there was really no reason to put that into the book right there. At that point, it was kind of like out of nowhere. But it was mm-hmm. kind of funny the way he says, like, you'll never know who'll get it. Like, it's just like a way to keep things light. Um, yeah. Definitely hard to keep things light when you have a, to- a topic, like, as dark as this one. Um, but I could, I could, it, it's definitely adult humor. But it's still something that you would hear a high school boy say. So it ranges anywhere from that age to, you know, someone older, too. Yeah, I do feel like there's a mix between, like, almost immature humor, it seems like. But, like, it's not, like, put in an immature way, I guess. It just seems as, like, a joke and, like, you said younger kids would make. 
but then there's also like that dark humor like the really dark humor about like people dying and other stuff like that so yeah. i actually have a quote regarding something about dark it's not dark humor it's actually like a, a kind of ironic it says warner glunk the young guard was a dresden boy he had never been in a slaughterhouse before so he wasn't sure where the kitchen was he was tall and weak like billy might have been a younger brother of his. They were, in fact, distant cousins, something they never found out. So it's, it's kind of crazy that in the slaughterhouse, somebody else who was working there was Billy's distant cousin that he didn't know of, and they probably interacted without even knowing that they were cousins. Yeah, it's any... kind of funny because um, there there is a lot of cases of that that um, Kurvonik puts in the book about, like, um, just ironic stuff that Billy mm-hmm. Billy um becomes aware about because of his time on Trail Famidor. Um but yeah, there's a lot of stuff where he he meets people or he sees people that and the book brings up like people that aren't really even in the story but somehow 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 some way relate to Billy. Um you know the being cousins, distant cousins with uh Werner Gluck. Mm-hmm. Um, that he he would have never known that, but you know being able to see through that fourth dimension, we were able to, he you know see that. Um, there's also the case of, um, when he was on the honeymoon with his wife, and on the boat across from them there was a couple on a honeymoon, and that woman that was on her honeymoon, she used to be um, in a relationship with John F. Kennedy when she was younger. So, you know, just funny, like, it's a small world type things yeah. that happen a lot in this novel. I feel like the the honeymoon thing is a little bit random, it seems like. That's kind of, I don't know, that's just like a random fact to throw in there that, like, this random girl also dated or, like, was getting married to JFK at one point. Yeah, I mean, that's how a lot of these are. Like, it's just, like, random things that he he wouldn't know. Um, it's just random things that, like, people can relate to. And yeah. Like, it's, almost things that just the reader know that he doesn't. It's almost like a, um, just a way to show, like, just how small the world is. How kind of, like, unimportant we are. You know, we think, mm-hmm. like, we're alone in this universe and then he gets abducted by Tralfamadorians and um, kind of like shapes everything he believes in Mm -hmm. and like what he talks about. Um, But yeah, that wraps it up for this segment. Um, Tune in in a little bit and we'll be back after this short break. Welcome back everybody to our third and final segment of the Unstuck at Home podcast. Uh, This is episode number two. And for this segment, we're going to be talking about the Traflamadorians and their views on earthly things and things that are going on on their own planet. So what are you guys' uh, opinions on the Traflamadorians? Well, the way they view different things is certainly um, kind of incomprehensible for humans. Um, but some of the stuff they are saying, Billy is starting to uh, kind of repeat. You know, he's saying he kind of believes in what they're saying after a few I feel chapters. Like he's starting now. to understand, yeah, like their ways of life and how they view certain things. 
but you can see like the difference between someone who's spent time with the Tralfamadorians like Billy and like just regular humans that haven't because when he brings up brings up stuff um about what they believe in to just other ordinary people they're kind of like off put by it like uh when he says at the end of chapter five here and he says uh while he examined the boy's eyes billy told him told him matter-of-factly about his adventures on tralfamador assured the fatherless boy that his father is very much alive still in still in moments the boy would see again and again and then he asks him, uh, isn't that comforting? Which is kind of uh, weird to bring up to a kid who lost his father. Um, but that, that is how the Tralfamadorians uh, view things. They only see death as just being dead in that moment. They rather see the, uh, all the good times that that person has had and all the, like when they were healthy and stuff. They don't. They don't really mourn the person's death. They more of just like celebrate what their life was, and I feel like for humans and especially like a little kid, like you wouldn't be able to see past the fact that your dad is dead and not like what he did with his life and like what he was actually like. Yeah, but that's like human nature to focus more on like the the loss rather than like um what that person like what that person accomplished or. Uh, like all the good memories you have with them. Like when someone dies, your like direct instinct is to just be really sad about it and mourn it for a long time, especially if they're really close to you. You kind of like can't get over that, that they're gone. But uh, in Tralfamador, that's a little different. And I know with their views on people, they just like look past their deaths and, like, just remember the good times and, like, don't worry about the bad times. Uh, I feel like uh, they're in a similar situation with that, with their wars. They talk about their wars and how they, like, war is, like, inevitable, inevitable and, like, it's going to happen. And they just, like, accept the fact that it's going to happen and just move past it. And when it is happening, they just kind of do it to get it done with it almost seems yeah and then they're just done with it and forget about it it's a predetermination like it's going to happen no matter what like you can't change the fact that stuff like that's going to happen you just have they like just Mm -hmm. focus on the good times rather than that awful time that they had i think in general sorry no no go ahead i was just going to ask you anything else to add I think in general, the way how Vonnegut created these um, aliens or these creatures, it's very interesting. Um, according to the book, actually, um, the trauma, Tralfadorians, um, they have five sexes. And they told, and they mentioned that there could be no earthling babies without male homosexuals, which I think it's very interesting how... Um, Vonnegut has these characters mention this segment in particular. It's like um, just interesting to see how he um, mentions homosexuals and how they're um, they're not meant they're they can't have earthling babies without male homosexuals, right? I feel like it's almost it's ironic, ironic yeah. that he's like telling Billy somebody that like telling Billy that like an earthling like who would not understand that like clearly there's like pieces of the universe that like set other things into place and like somebody on earth if you tell them you can't have babies without homosexual males they would be like 
very confused because that just doesn't make sense to a person on earth who would hear that. Yeah, right. it's kind of like that thing that goes back to um how Tralfamadorians view like the fourth dimension and kind of like they, they just see things that normal humans can't see, you know, being able to see uh, past, present, and future all at once. And then, um, mm-hmm. yeah, the thing about the sex is like you would never, you would never think that you would need a male homosexual to um, conceive a baby. And he also goes into uh, women and men over sixty-five, and uh, just like, like when you think of when humans think about or humans when. Even if you think about like in the natural world, like uh, you think about uh, the two animals having sex and then they have a uh, a baby in, for humans nine months, but other animals different amounts of time. Like you never talk about those like other factors that these uh, alien life forms are talking about, the Tralfamadorians. Mm-hmm. I, I have another point to bring up. Uh, there's a quote that says, um, Billy licks his lips, though a while inquired at last, why me? That is a very earthling question to ask, Mr. Pilgrim. Why you? Why us, for that matter? Why anything? Because the most, the, this moment simply is, yes. Billy, in fact, had a paperweight in his office, which was a blob of polished amber with three ladybugs embedded in it. Well, here we are, Mr. Pilgrim. Trapped in an amber of this moment, there is no why. What do you guys think? Like, Bonnie gets trying to say this. Like, there is no why. Like, there is... It, it kind of goes back to, like, the the repeated phrase, so it goes. Um, Like, the, all these things are predetermined. It's going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. Especially in these trial family Dorian views, you just, you just see that moment in time, but there's many other moments in time where um, you see like the, the good things or you, you just see a whole other um, perspective on stuff. And uh, he asks this question, why me? But it's kind of predetermined, you know, it's really not mm-hmm. them choosing him. It's just kind of, it just happens because it's supposed to happen. I think that's, like, weird to think about. Like, it's just supposed to happen like that. Like, things, like, in in this book, like, everything is just supposed to happen. Like, Billy has his whole life planned out for him, which most of it he already knows is planned out for him. But, like, he doesn't know why it's supposed to happen. He just knows it's going to happen, which is a a weird reality to think about. Yeah, and you can definitely see him coming to terms with that. Like, um, he just kind of accepts the fact that he's going to be traveling in time, bouncing around. And uh, and he knows that his life is not normal, but um, but he has like much like deeper insight about like the world and stuff because his time on Trail Famador. Mm-hmm. All right, you guys have anything else to add to the segment? Um, uh, no, no. Mm-hmm. All right, well, that's gonna wrap up. The third and final segment of our podcast today. We'll be back after the short break for our outro.
Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Unstuck at Home. Catch us next week as we go over chapter. Uh, it's been great having you guys. Uh, we're your host, Aiden Silva. Luis Gallardo. And Brendan Gleason. Thank you and have a good night.